through it and making kind of commentary as I go. But this time, I'm going to do something different. Uh, you know, change it up. You don't want to see the same thing over and over. It gets, gets old, right? Uh, so wh- what I'm, what I'm going to do it, uh, this series uh, next, this weekend, next four weeks altogether, um, is what we did was kind of journal, journey through uh, a valley by foot last time. We just kind of walk through step by step. And uh, another way of studying the scriptures is kind of an overview sometimes. I, I teach a course called Intro to Bible, and I explain to my students what we're doing is flying over large portions of areas. So if you've ever flown west and, you know, the pilot might say, hey, that's the Grand Canyon, so you look out the window and it's gone after about 30 minutes, right, or 15 minutes. Um, and, and that's what we're doing today. But that gets really boring if you're only in the, in the airplane. So what we're going to do is it's more like a, 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 if you, have you been a cruise here on a ship for a long time? But they, they, they land, right? They, they dock at a port, and you have these little trips. And that's what we're going to do. So today, I'm going to try to give you a big picture overview of the book of Job. Then the next three weeks after that, uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll stop. And we'll look at some of the more important passages uh, that, that shape the book of Job. And uh, I know I say this every time I come here because I've taught Ruth and Jonah and Genesis. Job is one of, the, one of my favorite books of the Bible. <laughs> uh, there are books I don't read very much or study very much. Like most of us, we don't read Leviticus religiously, right? Uh, you've read it once and it's about enough for most of us. I don't go into Leviticus. Uh, there, uh, very rarely will I go into, uh, say, uh, numbers even, even though there are some great stories there. Uh, but some of my favorite books are these stories. And uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Job. Uh, but it, what, what turns out uh, to be the most beautiful part of Job for me is not just the story, uh, the, you know, e- even in our common uh, vernacular, we have a saying like the patience of Job. Uh, it turns out Job wasn't all that patient when you read his, his speeches. And uh, what we have in the, uh, most of the book is poetry, beautiful, beautiful poetry uh, in, in dialogical form. It, and it's, it reminds me almost Shakespearean dialogues when people speak in these lengthy, beautiful, poetic lines. And that's what's happening in the book of Job. Uh, so l- let me begin today with just a, a quick overview of the book. And uh, next class, we'll talk about uh, the framework uh, and, and, and that w- the, the story framework. And then we're going to get into the laments and God's response to Job and his Job's friends. And uh, So the book of Job uh, has, for most of us, uh, that, that story of Job suffering and being patient and not denying God. And, and there's, there's a, of course, it's about suffering. And it has profound theology about suffering, but it relates often to God and sin. So I've, I've got a question for you. And this is a question, it's just a true or false question. And I, I want you to just go with their gut. Uh, don't think too much about this question and just whatever comes to your mind, true or false, uh, true or false, ready? Sin leads to suffering. 
True, right? That's your gut. And then you think about it for a bit. If you think about it too long, then you go, well, sometimes you sin and sometimes it doesn't automatically lead to suffering. Um, you know, people do evil things and gain good things out of it. But then if you think even longer, you think, no, but they still suffer ultimately. Uh, so sin leads to suffering, most people would say. That's generally true. How about this? Okay, again, go with your gut. Suffering indicates sin. No. Well, does it? If sin leads to suffering, couldn't you argue then that suffering then indicates sin? There's a logical fallacy here. <laughs> Right, yeah, <clears throat> there's a cause and effect problem here. And the reason that seems false to us is because I think we, uh, we understand that suffering can be caused by other factors. In fact, we know from scripture that there are forces that cause suffering. Um, the Bible often describes the evil forces that cause suffering, including Satan. In fact, God can cause suffering. God causes suffering to test our faith. And, and, and Jesus even says, when you face trials and tribulations, rejoice. Like, Ooh, that's not, that's not an easy thing to do, to rejoice. So since there are other factors, in, in fact, in a fallen world, um, I am at the end of this three, do you know this nasty cough that's going around? <laughs> it's three weeks long now, and um, <clears throat> my son has it. He's on prednisone now. He just can't get over this cold and this cough. Just a virus sometimes will cause suffering. Uh, we live in a fallen world where suffering is almost part of life. It's such a part of life that one of the great religions of our world, Buddhism, has four noble truths. Uh, Buddhism has, you know, there are five tenets of pillars of Islam, there are four noble truths of Buddhism, and the first truth, the absolute truth of Buddhism is life is suffering. That's their basic premise, life is suffering. It is. So, Job and his friends will have this conversation. Job is suffering. And so his friends will assume, hey, you're suffering. Sin causes suffering. You must have sinned. They haven't taken philosophy 101 or logic, right? You can't go backwards of cause and effect. Uh, and, and, and Job will protest, no, I'm not. I, I don't know what I've sinned to deserve this. Remember, Job loses all of his wealth. His kids die. I mean, losing wealth is one thing, but losing all your kids? And his wife essentially leaves him. His wife says, curse God and die already. Literally, that's what she says. Curse God and die. It's better for you to do that. So he doesn't even have the support of his wife. And so he laments. And his friends, his very good friends say, you are a sinner. That's why you're, you must repent. Uh, do you remember a few years ago uh, in 2012, there was a, a bunch of tornadoes that hit kind of our area, Midwest and Ohio, and, uh, and there were several of these that, that hit and it, it devastated small towns and 
Um, there's a writer, a well-known pastor and writer by, by the name of John Piper. Now, he's, he's a Calvinist, and he believes that God is responsible for everything, which I agree in some sense, but he's got a very specific kind of Calvinism, almost hyper-Calvinistic, and this is what he said about that event. He says, why would God reach down his hand and drag his fierce finger across rural America, killing at least 38 people with 90 tornadoes in 12 states and leaving some small towns with scarcely a building standing, including churches. So he saw these tornadoes as the finger of God dragging across our Midwest. That in and of itself to me is troublesome, just that that's how he views tornadoes. But if you read his blog a little further, he attributes this to sin. Uh, The American Midwest have sinned so greatly that God has done this. And then he says, every deadly wind in any town is a divine warning to every town. So in other words, we're not any worse than other towns. The Midwestern towns, I'll be honest with you, it's probably better than other towns, right? Uh, But what, what Piper was saying, God did this so that other people would see the sin. And so if people repent, then this, it's almost as if uh, Piper believes that if we all as a nation repented of all of our sins, there would be no hurricanes, no tornadoes, no earthquakes. They would all just disappear. Uh, Which in my mind doesn't gel with science or good theology. Uh, We know what causes hurricanes and earthquakes and and tornadoes. I'm not removing God from that, um, but he seems to be going backwards. People are suffering. Ooh, they must have sinned. And it's a very common view. In fact, I've heard this um, just after 9-11. Pastors, preachers came out and said, ooh, this is judgment on us. How, judgment on New York City and Washington. Like, how would you know that? It's troublesome. I even heard an elder a few years ago talk to the spouse of a cancer patient and ask the family to reflect on what sin might be in their life that God has brought this about. Can you imagine? Now, but it seems kind of logical. Well, you're sinning. Sin results in suffering. You're suffering, so you must have sinned. And if it hadn't been for the book of Job, I might have said, hey, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. But the book of Job basically says, no, 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 no. Not at all. Not even close. In fact, Job was chosen to suffer only because he was the most righteous person on the earth at the time. He's the one person that God was most proud of. He's like the Noah of his generation. So it's, it's not the, the idea that sin causes suffering, obviously true, but that suffering can come on the most innocent and even the most righteous, especially Job. So this is false. Sin indi- uh, suffering indi- indicates sin is clearly false. 
But, but there are theological uh, ideas in the Bible that seems to contradict that. So for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, there is an idea called retribution theology. And retribution theology says, if you obey God and follow God, God will bless you. If you disobey God, if you break the covenant, then God will curse you. The blessings and curses of Deuteronomy seem very tight. So cause and effect seem to be sincerely linked. But the problem with that are twofold. One, uh, Deuteronomy, the curses and blessings were corporate. It was for the entire nation of Israel. Individuals didn't suffer. You remember, Jeremiah, the most righteous in his generation, who, were, who was uh, at the time pronouncing judgments and saying, please, please, please repent because if you don't, the curses are coming and the final curse of the Deuteronomy curses is exile. And they actually do get exiled and Jeremiah has to witness this. And he himself suffers. So even the innocent suffers when the corporate body suffers. Almost like Pauline, 1 Corinthians, when you know, everybody suffers together. Also, <laughs> Job is not an Israelite. So he, even if you were part of this covenant, it wouldn't apply to him. Um, <clears throat> or, so we don't really know exactly where Uts is. So if you're in the book of Job, it begins, there was a man uh, once uh, from the land of Uz, Uts. Uh, it's, I think, spelled Uz, U-Z or something like that. And uh, <clears throat> his name was Job. And we don't know where Uts is exactly, but it's certainly not an Israelite town. So Deuteronomic theology or retribution theology wouldn't apply to Job. And it would have never applied to an individual anyway. All right, any questions so far? We're getting theological, so, all right. <clears throat> the book of Job itself looks like this. Uh, we all know the story of Job. Job suffers, he's righteous, and his. Um, uh, wealth and his children, everything restored back at the end of the book. That story really is just a very small beginning and end, and, and that's the narrative framework I mentioned earlier. So there's a narrative framework into which you have the poetry in the middle. So I call it kind of like the pillbox looking thing. Uh, my students ask me, because they, they don't read often. When you tell them to read something, they don't always read it. So I have them read the book of Job, and I have them come, and the, easy way, the easiest way to tell if somebody's actually even opened the Bible to, to, and, and looked at Job is to ask, what kind of writing do you have in the book? And if they say, it's a story, then I know you haven't read. Uh, it's mostly poetry. And so the sandwiched part in between is the largest part but it's the part that I think too often gets ignored. Um, I've heard so many sermons on the book of Job only really about that story and rarely in the poetry itself. The book is composed by someone who has omniscient narrative. Um, so this person knows what's going on in the heavenly council when God is, ha is, ha is having this conversation with Satan or the Satan, the adversary. We'll talk about uh, that character in a minute. Uh, God. God and uh, Job's heart, 
what they're thinking and what they're feeling are readily available to the, to the narrator. Um, and, and the question that I often ask about wh whenever we get into a book is about genre. And <coughs> ancient literature has different kinds of genres in ours, but some overlaps exist. Like when I said prose and poetry, those are genre questions, right? Poetry is a genre, and prose is a, these are huge genres. But within that, there are specific ones. Um, <coughs> and my question often to, to my students is this, uh, what kind of genre has, typically, omniscient narrative? Omniscient narrative. Yeah, how does, how does the author know what characters are thinking? So if you're reading, say, um, the Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, the book begins uh, with the professor and those kids, Lucy and Edmund, and those kids, and, those, and, and the author is able to tell you exactly what Lucy's feeling, that she was afraid of the professor at first. How does the author know that? Because the author is making it up, right? The author has access to all the character because it's C.S. Lewis, is, he knows the characters because he's making them up. It, but if you're reading journalistic pieces where it's not, um, where the, the observer doesn't have access to the mind of the person, good journalists can't tell you what the person's thinking or feeling, only what they're reporting. So you can say, so-and-so said he was angry. So-and-so said that she was afraid. Uh, so reporting observation is different from omniscient narrative. So omniscient narrative, when you pick up a novel and you start reading, and the, and the narrator seems to access the heart and mind of the characters, we know what kind of writing we're reading. It's usually fictional. It's imaginative. Um, However, here, here's uh, the other, oh, oh, one more thing, uh, one more thing. Also, people in this story, so there are, uh, we'll talk about the characters in a bit, all the characters speak in poetry to each other. Uh, I can't remember ever having a dialogue with somebody in poetic form. It'd be kind of fun to try to, to speak to each other in poetry. Uh, the reason Shakespeare's, you know, when you read Hamlet, and Hamlet has these long soliloquies and people speak in poetry is because somebody wrote them down. I, I don't think even the best extemporaneous speak speaker can come up with that kind of poetry on the spot. Uh, it's well-written poetry. And so those two factors, so keep those in mind. The omniscient narrative and poetic dialogue suggests that there is an imaginative writing happening here. Uh, however, I, I'm not sure if Job is entirely fictional, and, and, and here's why. Uh, like I said, the ancient writers and literature, uh, those, the genres that they wrote in don't have an exact comparison to our literature, and even within their world, Job seems kind of unique. So scholars struggle on how to classify Job. We know that Book of Kings is his, historical writing. We know that Ruth is a short story, so is Jonah. We know that Jeremiah is a prophet, so his book is called a prophetic work. Uh, there are laws. There are lots of genres in the Bible that people classify. Book of Job, people kind of scratch their heads. We don't have other books like this. Because a genre, when you walk into a bookstore or a library and you're looking for a specific kind of genre, there's a whole area. So if you go under young adult fiction or you go into self-help, 
those books are alike, right? But what happens if you find a book that doesn't fit any other book? It's a bit of a head scratcher. And, and Job is one of those unique literature uh, from the ancient world. People have tried to connect it to Babylonian writing, Egyptian writings, and they've not been very successful. It does, there's no easy overlap. Um, but I think there might be something to the book uh, beyond just fictional or imaginative writing. Because the book begins like this. There was once a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job. And take a look at Judges 17.1. It says, there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Judges is historical storytelling, right? Uh, Samuel, for Samuel, there was a man from uh, Ramatime whose name was Elkanah. So there is kind of a convention of beginning a story. Notice these are all verse ones, right, of a, a new character or a new story. Um, so when, when you begin a story, there was a man from a place and his name was this. That seems to be telling a story about a person that lived somewhere. Uh, and, and so um, you know how you can tell a genre sometimes really quickly? So if you uh, pick up a little book and it says, once upon a time, we all know we're reading fairy tale right away. Um, there was once a man from blank, whose name was blank, seems to be a genre indicator. We know right away, oh, it's a story about a man who lived somewhere, some historical figure. But we just saw that it has omniscient narrative and it has poetic dialogue. And we don't get any of those things in Judges or Samuel. So what do we do with this? It's possible um, because this is a convention, something get, that tells a genre right away, that the author is manipulating it a little bit. So for example, Once Upon a Time, we know Once Upon a Time is a fairy tale indicator. Uh, I once wrote a little uh, blog article that began, Once Upon a Time, in 1989, a young man from Boston. Uh, and then I went on and, and the, th the blog article ended and it was far from happily ever after. So what I did was I took the fairy tale genre and, and this very difficult point in my life I talked about how I expected it to be fairy tale but it wasn't. So you can take a well-known convention like that and manipulate it for effect. So it's possible that the author of Job is doing that once upon a time. Once there was a man from a place called Uts. His name was Yov. And, um, but there's one other hiccup to that. Job is mentioned among other historical figures in the Bible, especially in Ezekiel 14. He's named right next to Daniel. So what do we do with that? <laughs> so I think, I think there's a, 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 a place here where we could say maybe, and this is my guess, maybe we have an imaginative retelling of a person who actually lived in history. So there was a guy whose name was Yov or Job, and this Yov guy who lived in Uts had this amazing experience. 
this experience of absolute agony and pain and loss and suffering. Perhaps his, all of that was restored at one point. And maybe he had these friends whose name was Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and some young guy named Elihu. Uh, we'll talk about him in just a minute, a young guy named Elihu. And maybe his wife really did say at one point, like, would you just die? <laughs> Please just die. Maybe, we don't know. That's my guess. Uh, because of these factors that we just talked about, maybe Job is this kind of fictionalized, imaginative retelling, poetic retelling of a story of a guy who, and, and, and by the way, uh, there's, uh, there are other things I haven't talked about. So the measure of his, his wealth in, in livestock and things like that place him very comfortably in Middle Bronze Era uh, among Abraham and other patriarchs. So he might have been a patriarchal figure uh, outside Israel. Remember, Abraham didn't come from Israel either. He came from a place called Haran. Actually, his father is from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in Babylon. So maybe uh, Abra Abraham and J Job are figures very similar because um, their wealth is measured in very similar ways and their culture seems very similar. Um, so I think, that's my guess. Now, would I die on that hill? No. <laughs> uh, it, it is a conjecture, but I think it's the best conjecture. Now, scholars generally agree. Uh, so this is not just my guess. This is a guess by lots of biblical scholars. They think, oh, yeah, that fits. As I said, uh, the prose, prologue and the epilogue, so if I talk about the epilogue and the prologue, I'm talking about just a narrative story of Job. Notice how small the ending is. The prose, uh, just verses seven through 17 of chapter 42 is the ending conclusion. And then you got the first two chapters, and this is, uh, we'll begin here, Next, next time, and, and, and get also into some, some poetry too. But uh, there are the largest portion are his dialogues with his friends. Like I said, there's this young, young person named Elihu. He identifies himself as a younger person. He says he sat and listened to the elders, hoping for some wisdom, and he didn't get any, so he's gonna speak at the end. And then God speaks at the very end, obviously. God gets the last word. And the largest portion is that section. Uh, notice chapters three to 31. That's the poetry. Uh, in fact, the, the Yahweh's response, God speaks in poetry too, when God addresses Job and when Elihu speaks. So all, everything in between is poetry and, and just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poetry. Now, um, poetry is hard to translate. I don't know if you've ever tried to translate things, uh, but if you're translating words for meaning, because that's all you can translate, you don't get the artistry of the words, which post poetry is. Poetry it really is word art, right? Literature that is artistic. The, the sound sometimes, or the way that it rolls off your tongue. Uh, and so instead of saying, do I kill myself or do I continue to live, to be or not to be? That is the question. So the iambic pentameter, or however you phrase things, once you translate it into a different language, you can translate the meaning, but not the artistry so much. So that's why poetry is sometimes uh, difficult to access for, uh, for most of us in our English translations. Luckily, however, Hebrew poetry doesn't care as much about sounds and meter and rhythm and rhyming so what it cares most about is meaning. 
paralleling meaning. So instead of rhyming sounds, what it, wh- what it will do, you know how you, you, we have to learn like A-A-B-B or A-B-A-B patterns of rhyming? There's A-A-B-B patterns of meaning in Hebrew. So when you translate it, you're getting a lot of it, which is, I don't know, that, that's amazing to me. that You can read the Psalms and not lose so much uh, when, you tr- when you translate into English. So when you read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. To me, that's almost as beautiful. Um, so, like I, like I said, the dialogue is the, the, the main part. So let me break that down for you. And this is, this is where it gets a little uh, interesting. Whoever composed this book created three cycles of dialogues. So Job speaks with Eliphaz, Job responds uh, to Eliphaz, then Bildad talks, then Job responds to Bildad, and then this guy named Zophar talks. So three friends of of Job. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The second cycle repeats that pattern exactly. Job, Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar. Third cycle seems to go in that order, right? Uh, Hebrew loves to play with structure and repetition. Uh, in Genesis, we, we saw how each day in Genesis 1 is structured beautifully. And then chapter, uh, and the sixth day is ginormous. It breaks the kind of pa- the pattern. So when, when you build a pattern and you break it, it's noticeable. So if you've got a pattern of just up and down, and then all of a sudden you get a big one, and you show that graph to somebody, the first thing people see is the big line. Or if you've got a pattern of a flat line, and a little bump, and another flat line all the way across, you show that to a little kid, and the first thing the kid sees is the bump. We're just wired to notice things that break the pattern. So when you're listening to music, um, composers will do this. Right, Beethoven is famous for building patterns and then breaking it. Uh, Beatles <laughs> used to do that too. Take a look. So Job across, you can see the, the pattern here. Building, building, building. <coughs> At the end, Zophar doesn't get his say. And it breaks the pattern. Job speaks again. And the last two parts, uh, we'll, we'll look at those, those chapters specifically. Chapter 28 is this beautiful psalm on wisdom. It is a poem, and it looks, if, you, if I took it out of Job, put it in the book of Psalms, no one would notice. <laughs> it would just be like, oh, look at this beautiful psalm about wisdom. In fact, there's a genre in the book of Psalms called wisdom psalms, and this would fit right among those. Uh, the last part, 29 to 31, uh, you can see that it's called apology. Uh, apology um, is a defense. We tend to think of apology as saying, I'm sorry, but the word actually means defense. So when you, th- oh, uh, think of apologetics. So apologetics is defense of faith. So apologia is in a defense, and at the end, Job is making a vehement defense of his innocence. And we'll, we'll talk about those very important chapters as well. Uh, any questions?
Does it seem like the same person? Is it all in the same? Originally, that it was one man that wrote it. Oh, good question. The question is, does it does the book seem like it's one? unified literature, like one person wrote it. Uh, there's lots and lots of discussion about the composition of Book of Job. Uh, the theory, the, the, the predominant theory is this, that the prose narrative, the framework, was written separately from the poetry, and then so the, the framework was separated, that little story about this man named Job, who suffered and his wealth was restored, that got separated into the outside, the epilogue and the prologue and be, in, in before that, and then the poetry was inserted. Uh, a, a scholar named, very, very influential scholar named of Hebel discredits this theory, and he shows meticulously that the, the writing is very unified. So I, I uh, and I, and it's a massive work, and, and he's not, he doesn't have uh, an ax to grind. He's a, he's a uh, Norman Hebel is a, a well-known, respected scholar among pretty much everybody in this field, and he says it's, he argues very carefully through literature, through style, through vocabulary, through theo theological ideas, that is one unified work. Any other questions? There are still lots of uh, disagreement though still about when it was written and how it was written. And even after Hebel's book came out, uh, this is uh, you know, decades ago, still there are people who hold to uh, more of a source critical approach. A source critical approach says, well, there's these different sources that got combined over the years into one book. Um, and one of the arguments that they make is actually based on the character of Job. The the book of Job seems to portray Job in two very different ways. One, sometimes he's very, very faithful to God and he would not curse God and he's righteous and, he, and he's, he's steadfast and a, you know, just a wonderful man of faith. And other times he seems to say, where is this God? Or he sometimes literally says God is unjust. God is not fair. Um, or that God is a bully. That if God ever showed up, he would just crush me, I'd die. So he oscillates, and, and this is what I mean by source critical. <coughs> Excuse me, uh, approach to this. <laughs> but my question to that is, if you're a person of faith who's ever suffered, we know what this is, right? <laughs> if you're a person of faith and you've suffered, we go back and forth ourselves. At one moment when we remember God's goodness and we think, yes, God is faithful. Yes, we can do this. My Redeemer lives. The very next day or very next moment sometimes, like, where is this God? Why am I suffering? Why me? So uh, that, uh, the idea that somehow that oscillation between faithfulness and doubt or criticism of God um, I think it's natural to be angry with God when we're in, when we're in pain. Uh, Joe is described several times in the prose with these very um, almost absolute description. Uh, blameless, upright, uh, fearing God, and turning away from evil. 
It's repeated by the narrator, um, I'm sorry, it's first said by the narrator, and then God himself repeats this descriptor of, of Job twice. So three times you find this exact description, description of Job. And this is where I, remember I said uh, the book of Job is an absolute argument against the kind of theology that the sin, uh, uh, the suffering indicates sin. And this is why. If you actually look at the, the description and you forget the theology of, say, total depravity, just leave that behind and not impose that theology, this is what it says. Job is blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Sounds like Jesus, right? Uh, there's nowhere in the description that Job is sinful. Of course, we know all people, all human beings are sinful, and Eliphaz will remind Job, hey, can anybody be righteous before God? So his friend will remind him, hey, we're all sinful. But not according to God. God says Job is blameless, without any blame, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. There's no evil in him. He turns away from it. That's quite a statement. In fact, in the story, uh, you will recall that um, there's kind of a conversation that, that God has. And when God has a conversation with this Satan, thus the adversary or Satan, he says, have you considered my servant Job? So this whole thing begins because God is so proud, he can't keep his mouth shut. He's the one that begins this wager. Have you considered my servant Job? I'm so proud of this guy. Not even you can turn him away from me. So Job's wife, as I said, uh, curse God and die. Uh, I, 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 don't, I, used to, I used to wonder why she was in the story. And then uh, I was a young man when I started seminary. Uh, I got married a few years later. And now I know why she's in the story. <laughs> uh, some days I have really good days. And, and, you know, wonderful classes. You know, lectures go really well. Discussions go really well. Sometimes I'll speak in chapel and, and people praise me and say, you're so wonderful, TC. And I go home. And my wife grounds me back down, <laughs> right? She loves me. She loves me dearly. And we, we're celebrating our 20th this year, this summer. And, and, and I would not trade my, my married life for anything else. But she is a constant, gr she, she makes me real. Even, especially when I'm described in these kinds of terms. Job is described as blameless and fearing God and turning away from evil and all these wonderful highfalutin terms. But his wife says, curse God and just die. But I think, I also think, uh, more seriously, it kind of shows how much they must have been in pain. Uh, in this story, regardless of 
uh, its historicity. You know, some people say, you know, like I, I believe Job must have been a real character in history. Some people deny that, but regardless of that, in the world of the story, he loses everything. Now, where was the mother? She's right there. She's, she's lost all her kids. Where, what must she be going through to say, it would be better just to die? I, I, I think I can identify with that. Let's not be too harsh on Job's wife. And, and his friends, too. Um, his friends show up at first. They came. They hear about what Job is going through, and they came. In fact, in, in, in the beginning of that story, when they came, they, 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 the, the Bible describes this event like this. When they saw from a distance Job, they didn't recognize him. And then they raised their voices. That's a Hebrew way of saying really loud and wept. Each of the three friends tore their robes, threw dust over their heads or ashes, sometimes the same word in Hebrew, over their heads. That action of tearing one's robes and throwing dust or ashes on your head is what Hebrew people did as as an expression of mourning. So they see their friend Job suffering so greatly, they act as if he's died. And they're mourning with him. And, and, and it continues in verse 13 of chapter two, uh, two. It says, they sat on the ground with him for seven days. Seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. Imagine that. The pain's so great, you have no words. I've been there, where you just have no words to say to someone in such great agony, there are no words to speak. And they sat for seven days and seven nights with him. And that practice, by the way, it's called shiva. Shiva, uh, shiva in Hebrew means seven. And today, Jewish people still practice, kind of not quite sitting still, but seven days of mourning and uh, it's called sitting shiva. They even call it sitting shiva, you sit. So they sat with him, they mourned with him because his his kids are dead. Wealth you can restore, but what do you do with the lives of his children? So they're sitting with him. So I wish they would have stayed that way, (laughs) but Job starts it. Job laments in chapter three. He begins a painful lament and to that, Eliphaz will respond. Also, if they didn't say anything, you don't have a story. (laughs) You just have the framework. Uh, So other characters like Elihu. Elihu comes at the end of the book, toward the end of the book. He's not described as one of Job's friends, and and he's not introduced anywhere. He just shows up out of nowhere. Uh, He listens to the dialogue between, he says he's been listening to the elders, Eliphaz and Job and Bildad and Zophar, and they're all talking to each other. And that's the dialogue uh, that we see in the poetry. And he says, <clears throat> I've heard everything. I've lis- I was listening to some wisdom. I didn't get anything, so I'm gonna speak. 
And this is what he says. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like an unvented wine, like new wine skins. It is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Uh, another translation, the JPS, which is a, a Jewish translation, takes that word spirit there and makes it wind. Uh, you might recall that uh, in Genesis we talked about the ruach, the breath or the wind or spirit of God hovering over the face of the, of the deep. So the, the idea for ruach is that is ruach. It's spirit, but it's also breath. So if your spirit leaves you, if your breath leaves you, you die. So the Hebrew people had one idea, breath, wind, spirit. And so what Elihu really is saying is, I am literally filled with air. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burst like wi- unvented wine. Like if, you have, if you're fermenting things, it builds gas. And if you don't vent it, it's going to blow. So he's been holding his tongue, listening to his elders, and he just can't hold it anymore. He's going to burst. So he says, I have to speak. And, it, and the literature following, uh, following that, Elihu's speech, reads very much like a young hothead who's just spilling words out. When God begins to speak immediately after Elihu, God ignores Elihu entirely, never addresses anything Elihu ever said. And I used to also wonder, why is Elihu there? Job, I get. His wife, I get. His friends, I get. I know God. I know why God's in that story. But why is Elihu there? And it occurred to me a few years ago uh, when I saw young people reacting to suffering. And they should shut up. (laughs) Uh, Even if you've gone through a lot as a young person, it, it, it takes a lifetime to really build the kind of suffering that you can reflect calmly about. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Uh, and also, Elihu actually says nothing new. He says, I've listened to all these you know, wise elders and you've not given me anything, so let me tell you something. And he says some things that are just copy and paste from Eliphaz. So he's got nothing new to add to suffering, to someone suffering. The only person who adds new information and new things to Job's suffering is God at the end. And in our fourth class, we're going to talk about that in depth, God's response to Job. Uh, and Job's lament, especially Job's lament in chapter 3, and God's response to, the, to that. Uh, We call this character in the Bible Satan sometimes, and it comes from the Hebrew word Satan. And uh, it has an article, the, ha, in front of it, ha, Satan. The, Satan, uh, it suggests then that it's not a proper name. Proper names don't get an article. Um, proper names just get the name, like David, or, you know, or Samuel. It's not the David. So, Satan is not a definite article. I mean, uh, it's not a proper name at this point. At some point, actually, the definite article drops. So maybe it does become a proper name. But it means adversary. Or in this case, adversarial in the sense of, uh, I think of a prosecuting attorney. Uh, If you go to a court, 
to get to the truth, there's an adversarial system. They take the extreme sides trying to get to the truth, right? This adversarial system. And the adversary here is an accuser, and the accuser is this, that's what that means. And in and, and the New Testament too, right? He's the accuser of the brethren. Satan, Satan, is the accuser of the brethren. And that's what that means, accuser. In this, in this uh, story, I just told you about this prose and the, and the, and the poetry, God is a fascinating character. In the, in the prose, God is Yahweh. And some of you who've been with me a few times know that Yahweh is a name. And it's a covenant name. It's a very intimate name. Whereas Elohim or El or Eloah, those other words that we talked about last time in Genesis, Genesis 1 is God is Elohim, transcendent. Genesis 2, it's Yahweh, imminent, close. And in the poetry, God is often described as this tra- very transcendent being, this other. It's really important that God is Yahweh, especially to Job. One, Yahweh was a covenant name. Uh, and if it's, and I, <laughs> I think I equated it uh, once, uh, maybe it was last time or the time before, that it's, it's equivalent to my wife calling me babe. Nobody ever gets to call me babe except for my wife. And only Israelites were allowed to call God Yahweh. Job is not an Israelite, but he knows this God. Remember, Abraham even met uh, you know, Melchizedek. There are people outside the Israelite uh, world um, at the time, in the patriarchal period, who knew this God and experienced this God, and worshiped this God. And Job was one of those figures. Also, it's important, theologically, to say that God was imminent with Job. God is with Job throughout this whole thing. Uh, There there are many, many theological points that, that the book of Job points to, obviously about suffering. But the one that I found most prominent, the most compelling, and most beautiful, in fact, uh, really didn't have to do with suffering, but God's presence in that suffering. Ale, Elohim, transcendent being. Even Job thinks God is this very transcendent being who's powerful and mighty and might be fair, might be unfair, who knows? Maybe God is a bully, maybe God is just. Uh, His friends all describe God that way. But when God speaks to Job, it's as this very intimate being, Yahweh, this covenant person who shows up the most powerful moment in the book, I think, is when God shows up. Of course, right? It's God. But uh, beyond that, in the world of the story, it builds up to that. 
Because Job keeps asking, where is God, where is God? God should show up and answer me. He's kind of throwing temper tantrums. He's also accusing God, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about that. There's an accusation he's making of God, almost a legal accusation. God should show up and answer. Answer for himself. When God does show up, God answers. But imagine this, in the world of the story, okay? Imagine this. God is the creator of this universe, this Elohim, this Eel, Eloah, who shows up, talks to one person, one, one mortal being. That kind of transcendent being being imminent, I can't imagine even, um, even in human societies, if the Pope ever came to my house and said, hey, TC, I just want to talk to you, I wouldn't know what to do. It would never happen. Pope doesn't go to some random person's house and talk to one person. Do you know how difficult it is to, get the, get the, to see the Pope, just to see the Pope? Or the President? Or the Queen of England? Right? And these are just human beings. Can you imagine God showing up and just talking to you and you alone? Job wants God to speak to him and answer. And he shows up, not as Elohim, but as Yahweh. I'm here. Let's talk. We'll talk more about that. It's a powerful story when it begins. Um, we have just a few minutes. Let me, let me talk about this real quickly. Because it is about suffering, um, and, and suffering uh, in Proverbs is about order. So again, like Deuteronomy and retribution theology, there is a similar kind of structure in the book of Proverbs. And like Deuteronomy, Proverbs says, hey, if you're a good person, you'll have a long, prosperous life. If you're a bad person, you'll have a short, terrible life. Order. On the other side, Ecclesiastes says, what order? Chaos. Evil people live well and prosper, and good people suffer. Whoa, really? What about Proverbs? And then there's the other side. Deuteronomy says retribution theology. We talked about that already. Obey, bless. Disobey, curse. And then the book of Job says, we don't know why we suffer. In fact, the most righteous person suffers here. And uh, this, is, this is the most amazing thing about our scriptures. Uh, we don't have one book. We have many, many books in the Bible. And it's not written by one person. It's not Muhammad. It's not just Moses. We have many perspectives and, and theologies in the Bible. And some, you know, old preachers used to talk about the entire, the whole counsel of God. And I used to wonder, what does that mean? And now I finally get it. You know how you can't take a word out of context or a sentence out of a context? You can't take a book out of a context. Our Bible has books and you can't take it out of context. Job is in the context of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Deuteronomy. Yes, there are sometimes order and yes, there's sometimes chaos. Yes, sometimes you know why you, you suffer and sometimes you don't. 
One of my students asked me years ago, and, and that's got me prompted, and, and I started researching and writing on Job. Uh, and the student, she asked me this. She said, when God finally speaks at the end, why doesn't he tell Job why he's suffering? Don't we want to know why? I mean, isn't that the number one question when you're in pain? Why? Why me and why this? And God shows up to Job, and God talks about himself. I'm the creator. I've set limits on things, and I've done this, and I've done this. You're not that creator. I'm the creator. So that doesn't seem very satisfying. Why doesn't Job get an answer at least? And I didn't have a response to Emily, and so I said, let me look it up for you. And that's my go-to when I don't know the answer to something in classrooms. I'll look it up. And instead of just blowing it her off, I did. And nobody talks about it. So I thought, I better research this. So I did. And I researched for three years. <laughs> I never got back to her, except in an article. I wrote the article after three years of research, and I sent her the article, thanks for prompting this thought. And it was published in uh, Journal of Biblical Literature. It's, it's kind of like the New England Journal of Medicine for our field. And, so, I, and my answer is this. Do you get an answer? Do I get an answer when we suffer? When we ask why, does God ever show up and say, here's why? A, B, here's... No. If Job got an answer, he wouldn't be one of us. We don't know why we suffer. But you know what Job gets? God. We get God. We get God more than Yahweh. We get Jesus. Our response to suffering is, often is why. The answer to that why is not because. It's here I am. And most of us who suffer know this. When you ask why, and there's a loved one next to you, or someone who's trying to comfort you, no matter what they say, nothing will be satisfying. What's comforting is that they're sitting next to you, isn't it? And the person sitting next to us when we suffer is God. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.